This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. While millions of people have read Malcolm Gladwell's books, his ideas have had particular resonance with today's business leaders. As Fast Company magazine said of the New Yorker staff writer and best-selling author, Gladwell and his ideas have reached a tipping point of their own. This month, Malcolm Gladwell Collected was published as a box set, offering three iconic books that have deeply influenced managers over the past decade, The Tipping Point, Blink, and Outliers. In October, Wharton management professor Peter Capelli and Gladwell were named to HR Magazine's Top 20 Most Influential International Thinkers of 2011. Capelli recently spoke with Gladwell by phone about why Gladwell is an academic groupie, the inconvenient truths that can spring from scholarly research, and his book in progress. Gladwell also reflected on how important decisions, like going to war or dealing with today's economy, might be dealt with differently if we were to draw on the extraordinary wisdom of universities. Um, Malcolm, welcome. I, you probably know I'm a professor here at the Wharton School. I've been a big fan of your work and enjoyed reading it and using it in, in different ways. And we understand this is a, an occasion of a release of one of your set of collected works. Yeah. And we wanted to ask uh, maybe just some general questions. The thing uh, I think that many of us marvel at your books about is this uh, intersection between uh, small stories, uh, small pieces of research building up to something that really kind of uh, is fundamental and, and, you know, at least in a few cases, have become part of the, the lexicon. Can you tell us just a little bit how you think uh, about that? How does it happen? It seems to be quite a remarkable thing f- to pull that off. Oh, um, I don't really know. I mean, I, I, um, I always think that there should be a um, a reason for reading something. So the, you know, you want to tell someone a story, but then you want to give them a, a a bigger reason for caring about the story. And so I'm always thinking um, on two tracks simultaneously, um, and I think that's probably what you're talking about. Is I want to try and place the um, examples or stories or narratives that I'm that I'm engaged in in a kind of context. Um, do you find that you uh, are seeing a phenomena and then you go hunting for research to see what it says about that? Or does some research uh, article pique your interest and then you start looking around and seeing it? Well, I mean, I get attracted to stories that um, strike me as having potential. Um, so for Outlier, Outliers began, for example, with the chapter on the Jewish lawyers. Um, I just was, for some random reason, talking to someone once whose father was one of those lawyers. And she said, she just made this observation, you know, they're all like my dad. They're all, they're all from the Bronx. And they all, their parents were all in the garment industry. They all went to NYU Law School and City College. And they're all born in 19, the 1930s. Um, I thought that was so fascinating that I just kind of, that began the whole thing. Um, because it was such an unusual way to thinking about this class of incredibly successful people. Um, she didn't even make reference to, they're all obviously all brilliant, but she wasn't approaching it from that standpoint. She was saying somehow they, they were, uh, their success was a, 
could be thought of as a, a, a group phenomenon. And so that, that's the kind of story that I love, that, that, um, that is kind of unusual and compelling in its own right, but then has some kind of um, uh, points to some kind of larger interesting idea. Mm-hmm. Do, you, do you find, after you've done one of these, or in the middle particularly of one of these projects, like Blink, let's say, or Outlier, or, or uh, uh, the tipping point that in your day-to-day life when you're walking around or you're out with friends or things, you're seeing it everywhere? I mean, do you find yourself sort of, <laughs> you know, in the in the restaurants or in the subway seeing examples of these things and all over the place? Yeah. Uh, well, I wish, I wish, because then that would make the task of writing a book so much easier. Um, uh, that does happen, but it happens rarely. I mean, the sad fact about being a writer is that you know, in a good year, you have five good ideas. Um, so it's not like every day. It's more like every two months. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you do, I mean, you become alert to that theme. And so it gives you, you know, very often, what you, you know, especially when you're writing a book, you're kind of, you're assembling little bits of evidence and then figuring out which ones are relevant and which ones are, are kind of secondary. Um, sometimes you put the secondary stuff in anyway because it's just so much fun. So, um, but uh, they're not. I mean, they're not. A, these books are not assembled. I mean, they're they're very different from academic writing in the sense that there is they're not formal arguments. They're informal arguments, um, and they're supposed to be informal arguments. Um, they're supposed to have a kind of um, unfinished, um, imperfect quality to them because that's what prompts people to think about them and discuss them and tear them apart or add to them or do all the things that I like that people do to them. Uh, there's a question about the reaction you get to to your books. Uh, we, I know you grew up in Canada and I guess lived in England as a while maybe before that. Um, and you speak certainly, I'm sure, around the world. Do you get different reactions to these arguments in different parts of the world? I mean, are there some countries and some audiences that are really much more taken with the ideas or the more abstract ideas or some just very practical and yeah. particularly country by country is there a pattern to what they like well it's interesting i hadn't really thought about that it's only with the outliers that i began to see that that in europe the chapter everyone wanted to talk about was the plane crash chapter that that notion that different cultures had very different um perspectives on things like hierarchy and communication was of enormous interest to Europeans, obviously because they're a, uh, you know, a, a small unit with lots and lots and lots of very distinct cultures. Whereas in America, the, the notion of 10,000 hours was the one that seemed to capture people's attention. I, 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 I can't remember anyone bringing that up on the other side of the, of the Atlantic. Um, so I do, you do see different people, people, you know, all readers find, um, the things they want in your books and kind of extract them. And you do sometimes see these interesting cultural um, uh, 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 differences in what people choose to relate to. You know, so much of your work draws on and uh, makes use of uh, academic studies. What, what kind of reaction do you get um, from the academic community to the books yeah. that you've done? Well, mostly, almost overwhelmingly positive. People that, whose research I cite almost never heard someone be unhappy with the way I represented it. So that's always made me 
because I, I try to be very scrupulous in fairly representing what people, the arguments that academics make. And that's, I'm proud of that because it's a, I'm an academic groupie um, and I'm the child of an academic and I, I'm a, you know, I won't want to be academic and all these kinds of things. And so it's very important to me to have, to treat academic work respectfully. Um, the only trouble I have sometimes is that from academics who uh, evaluate my books on their terms, which I, as I said, I think is a mistake. Uh, I'm not trying to replicate um, or compete with academic work. I am doing something that's um, dis quite distinct from it. Um, I'm, I am translating it, and I'm cheerleading for it, and I'm elaborating on it, but I am not... Um, my works don't belong beside academic works. Um, and if you, if you evaluate them that way, you'll find them wanting. They're, they are quite consciously attempts to simplify and popularize complicated subjects. And, you know, I think every writer, every writer confronts this trade-off between um, uh, complexity on the one hand and accessibility on the other. And as you move along that continuum, you gain audience and you sacrifice um, nuance, right? And I have chosen to gain audience and sacrifice nuance, but there's no, there's no way out of that bargain, right? I can't add nuance and keep my audience, right? And I think that I'm frustrated sometimes with academics who um, are on the other end of the continuum and um, don't understand why I'm not there alongside with them. Well, actually, that w leads to a, a related question. Since you spend, obviously, a lot of time around the academic community and probably much more reading a lot of these uh, original studies, what do you think would surprise people? I mean, if you're sort of an ethnographer, I suppose, of the, <laughs> of the academic world in that sense. What do you think su would surprise non-academics, people who are far from uh, these studies, about the world of academics, the world of research, the sorts of people you're talking to on, on many of these topics? Yeah. Well, I think people, you know, it's funny, every now and again you hear some kind of um, uh, anti you see little strains of anti-intellectualism among congressmen or something. Um, and uh, you get the sense that people who aren't familiar with academic work think that it is very, very narrow, very, very abstract, and very disconnected from the kinds of things that the rest of the world worries and thinks about. And the thing that's surprising to me about, it, about a lot of academic work is how squarely it is engaged in um, the things that we all care about. I mean, it's a, so, I read stuff all the time, and it's like in psychology or sociology or economics, and it's, it's bang on what the rest of us are worried about or care about or think about. Um, it's just a more sophisticated and complex take. Um, but there's nothing, you know, there's certainly a highly abstract branch of, of, of scholarly work. Um, my father belongs to that branch, and no one would ever accuse what he's doing, him of what, of, of, of uh, accuse him of, um, of speaking to the issues of the day, right? He's an abstract mathematician. But I mean, you know, there's a whole other section of of, of academic life, which is, which I think deserves to be at the center of national conversations. And that's the surprising thing, is that you can go to a library and open a journal, and you're like, oh my God, this is, 
this is squarely in the middle of what we what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now. So would you have uh, advice to those people who, who ought to be paying more attention to the, to the uh, academic world? I mean, I think certainly your, your work has opened windows for lots of people to, to get into yeah. that. Uh, but for folks who are interested in policy or business and interested in the phenomena that uh, is going on in research, what would you tell them besides wait for your next book, which I'm sure is good advice, but uh, besides that, what would you tell them about how to get closer to this? I mean, it's an interesting question. You know, I always wonder, um, I, I've just been reading a lot about, the, for my new book, I've been reading a lot about the Vietnam War. And, you know, what's amazing, of course, with the Vietnam War is a set of lessons were painfully learned there, which were completely ignored uh, 30 years later in the Iraq War and Afghanistan. Um, it's, like the Viet- it's like Vietnam never happened. And one of the things that uh, academics, one of their roles in society is that they are our memory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That it's their job to, uh, to go back, look at what happened, make sense of it, and um, extract principles that allow us to learn. Um, the rest of us don't have either the skill or the time to do that. Um, and what's, what was striking about Afghanistan and Iraq and the those initial decisions to go to war is that there was no no memory there was no memory anywhere to be found. I mean, mm-hmm. it was as if the world had started over in 2004 um, or 2003, whenever it was. And I, you know, it's moments like that when um, I, you know, I I dearly wish that there had been um, some way for the academic world and the kind of public policy world to be more squarely in conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even if it's as simple of thing as, I don't think you can ever, you should ever have any kind of debate about military action in Congress without, you start by bringing in the historians and the political scientists and just have them remind you about what war is. Right? That's, I mean, that's, that's a very simple example. Or you can't have a debate about the economy, about how to get out of a recession, have someone come in and tell you about the depression and remind you about what happened when government sat by and did nothing. Um, as, you know, it's that kind of, that's a very, very simple example, but I just wish there was some way that um, we could, um, uh, there, was a, there was more of an appreciation of how much extraordinary wisdom there is. Um, you know, we've, this country has built the greatest set of universities the world's ever seen. Right. And yet we have discussions where we just we pretend those institutions don't exist. I, I want to get back to your to your new book in just a second, but but just to follow this for a second, um, uh, the, the sort of debasement of uh, rational conversation uh, and evidence based conversation is is, yeah. is probably part of the issue here. Uh, to what extent do you think the uh, the question is? On the academic community or this serious thinking community, one of political courage. You know, if you if you say something which is objectively true and it's something people don't want to hear, or at least one side of the argument doesn't want to hear, it, you know, they go after you personally. Um, is part of the problem here a sort of a lack of courage among the people who are in the political science, history, social sciences, not speaking up on these issues enough? Yeah. 
Well, you know, there have been these distressing, a distressingly large number of cases going back to McCarthy, but incredibly recently where academics who have simply followed the path of data have found themselves in the middle of political hot water, I mean, in a kind of outrageous way. Um, you know, I remember reading about, um, it was uh, uh, writing about, actually, a, a random example 15 years ago, a bunch of psychologists published a meta-analysis of all the studies of the long-term effects of childhood abuse and reached the conclusion that meta-analysis tell us that the long-term effects are far less than we thought. In fact, a large proportion of those abused in some way of children turn out just fine. And they got in a political firestorm erupted, and there was all kinds of talk of canceling funding and were jobs in peril, et cetera, et cetera. It was a meta-analysis. I mean, yeah, right. what are they supposed to do? I mean, it's like, it's so, that kind of thing just makes me, you know, you, when you read that kind of thing, you understand, well, that's why as an academic, you wouldn't want to, um, you wouldn't want to get too involved because there is this, um, there is this, there is this punitive streak in politics sometimes mm -hmm. towards people bearing um, unwelcome messages. But um, so yeah, you're right. I think it does take some courage, and I think it. Um, I think that uh, it, it, there are times when, um, when that keep, university community needs to speak as speak with one voice, and just say, you know, um, academic freedom is an absolutely sacrosanct um, uh, uh, principle of a of a uh, of a free society. You know, really kind of, I mean, I think they do do that, but I mean, I, 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 you're right, though. This is, it is, it surprises me, but that we still have these kinds of debates, but there's still, I mean, look at the, look at the kind of hot water people get in with climate change. I yeah, mean, sure. It's, yeah. A, it's, a, you'd think we were back in 1951 and you were being accused of being a communist. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's that's true. Uh, we, maybe the last question for you, we wanted to, to ask you a bit about what you're doing, what you're working on next, and you were saying a little bit about your, your book in process. Can you say more about what it's going to be? Oh, it's, uh, well, I'm interested in power, hmm. um, in looking at relationships between the powerful and the powerless. Um, but I'm sort of still at, the, at a very early stage, kind of feeling it out. So I don't, I don't have much to report, but I'm uh, on on what it's going to look like, but it's um, uh, there's a bunch of kind of different ideas that I'm I'm um, pursuing about this, um, trying to understand what happens when someone weak confronts someone strong. Mm -hmm. Is there was there an example that you saw that sort of kicked it off for you, the equivalent of the lawyers in the New York firms? Well, I mean, I, in so I mean. Arab Spring, obviously, kind of, but although I'm not using that example in my book, but that kind of got me thinking about um, some of this stuff. But in this case, no, I mean, often you, it's not clear until later what you're, where you started. You know what I mean, it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. I mean, I, these are ideas I've been playing with in some of my articles in The New Yorker for the last couple of years. And so it's been in the back of my mind, and I just, it just took a while to kind of figure out how I wanted to attack the book. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like it would be a very timely thing and certainly something that has uh, individual level application as well as uh, collective application. So we look forward to that. So thank, thank you very much for your thank time. Thank you so much for your interest. Yeah. And we'll certainly follow up with whatever comes out of this. Great. Pleasure. Great. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, 
please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.